When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, so far on this podcast, which has been out, what, like three weeks? Um, not that we didn't touch on, on some serious things, but mostly it's been fun. Comedians, filmmakers, basketball player, historical figure from ESPN. Uh, we're going to go a different route. We're going to talk PTSD. We're going to talk politics. And we can talk about both in the same interview because the subject is Jason Kander. This is likely going to be a world record for longest introduction of any of our guests. And it's funny because it's the one I know the least. I just know about him. And we've traded some notes, supported each other's foundations, veterans foundations on Twitter. Um, and it almost didn't happen. Well, he almost didn't happen, which he'll acknowledge. It's in his book, um, and which we'll get to. Invisible Storm is the book coming out. Um, I come down here to the studio where I tape these things and I hear music in there. Like, are they taping something? Cause sometimes they're, they're playing music in there. I'm hitting the door a bunch and they finally come to the door. It's like, do you have a session? It's like, yeah, one It's like in 15 minutes. Uh, and he looks, it's not in the books. Then I start digging for my computer. Cause we tape these on zoom or Riverside or whatever. And, and my computers, so I have no computer. I have no session, but I got a guest who I really want to interview in 15 minutes. Now we're down to 13 minutes clocks ticking. Uh, my guy's nice enough to, to like clear space, let us do this, borrowed his computer. My wife's looking for the computer in the street. She thinks I left it on top of the car, which I might have because I have left a wallet and car keys. Anyway, a uh, lot going on in my life. So I want to talk about Jason Kander's book. The qualification to be on my show, even though I don't know him that well, is in parentheses, Kenny Main Talks to Famous People podcast. He's pretty famous because he almost ran for president. So he qualifies right there. And I've, I've been a fan from a distance. Apparently, we both share uh, resistance Missouri political <laughs> leaning somehow. Sarah Kenzie, our fan, and she's from St. Louis. And I'm a fan of his wife, having never met her. So it's his book, but I'm going to read his wife's words because he did a beautiful thing, incorporated her into the book. She's a writer herself, and no offense to your writing, but it, this just says it so well. And I think you'll, you'll get so much about him and them just for the, this passage. Diana writes, Over the previous 10 years, Jason and I had gradually become two people in a marriage who both felt alone in their pain. Starting with his deployment to Afghanistan, we shared less and less of how we were feeling in order to protect each other. Until one day, we just didn't share anything at all. We were quietly living isolated lives and feeling desperate. PTSD tricks you into feeling that there is something wrong with you that no one will understand what you're going through, that they will judge you for your dumb thoughts, that they won't like you anymore. That includes family and significant others. It makes you think that you're protecting yourself, but really, you're left all alone with your intrusive thoughts swirling loudly in your, inside your own head. Within days of Jason's announcement, the announcement that he was dropping from the mayoral race in Kansas City, that's my words, we received thousands of letters and emails from people who had never told anyone about their own dark thoughts and isolating behavior. Friends whom we had known incredibly well confided in their dark times, their thoughts of suicide, and even their attempts. A volunteer on Jason's 
mayoral campaign shared that he had been contemplating suicide the morning of the announcement. Reading Jason's words made him pause and reach out to his mom. Strangers shared their struggles, and so did a lot of people we knew personally. I realized that it wasn't just me and it wasn't just him. We felt a level of connection like never before, not just to each other, but to our community. We heard from so many people that I felt I could walk into any room, any restaurant, and safely bet that at least a third of the people in that space were dealing with serious mental health issues in their family. That was incredibly comforting, but it didn't change the uphill battle Jason was facing. Making his announcement didn't alleviate his condition. In fact, it took away the only safety net that we had. Without the activities that at least somewhat suppressed it, Jason's depression intensified. He kept asking me if I thought he could ever be happy, and I was hoping the answer was yes, but I honestly had no idea. That's pretty heavy. Yeah, man, pretty heavy. Uh, I appreciate you uh, starting with that because, you know, the book is a lot of things. It's it's a, uh, it, more than anything, it's, it's a memoir about, you know, the age-old tale of what it's like to uh, run for president while you have an untreated, undiagnosed psychiatric disorder. <laughs> Just your coming-of-age tale. Um, but it, it is, you know, so it's a book about mental health. It's a book about politics because politics is the backdrop. And that's the only, you know, that's the way it's about politics. But the what I think the underrated, really important part of the book also is it's also a love story. Um, and that's why periodically throughout the book, uh, I I wanted to make sure that my wife was heard from, you know, directly in the first person, because of the love story aspect of, of that. And, you know, we've been together since we were 17. But mostly because when people go through mental health challenges, so do the people around them. They go through it with them, and uh, and I, I felt it was important for people to be able to identify with that perspective as well. So I appreciate you starting with that. Well, you sent the advanced copy to me. I assume fishing for one of the blurbs that borderline famous people write, and, that, and if you use better people, I'm fine with that, but I'm happy to write one. In fact, you just stole what I was going to tell you, my observation of the book. In short, it's like a self-realization book. It's a self-help book for those right? Who might read it and say, wow, he's talking about me too. And it's a love story, hundred mm-hmm. percent. You, it's almost like it was a virus, right? And you probably, you know, you, now you're become an expert on this thing. You didn't know what to call, or you tried to deny that you had, but now you know so much more having gone through it and getting to a better side of it. But it's almost like a virus that infects the other people around you. Cause your wife talks very openly. Like I had it too. I started having these crazy dreams that he was having. Yeah. It's, um, it's hard, like, because you're right, like, I'm not a clinician, I've become an expert in my own PTSD, and, and I've become very knowledgeable about PTSD. But I'm always trying to find the right language to explain this, right? Because what I what I don't want to do is I don't want people to be left with the impression that it's somehow contagious, right? Because then if I if I do that, then that's going to affect you know, employers out there who are looking to hire people who might have PTSD and then, well, I don't know if I want that in the office. So I want to be very specific that it is the sort of thing. And Diana actually in another passage explains this in the book that, you know, if you're, if you're sleeping every night next to somebody who's like, in my case, waking up with, with night terrors. And then because my wife and I've been together since we were 17 and I have this urge this compulsion to share everything with her i then will recount them and what diana refers to it there's some levity in the book she refers to it as horrible story time um where i'm like okay well here's what just happened to me in my subconscious because i couldn't go back to sleep anyway uh well yeah it 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 soaks into you um and then on top of that one of my other major symptoms was hypervigilance i 
had never adjusted to the idea that I was home and I was safe. And so like with the kids, I was constantly on alert and feeling that they were in danger and that people wanted to come and hurt us. And then when you put on top of that, that I could use the evidence of, you know, here we were this high profile Jewish couple in Missouri that was in statewide office and there had been, you know, some threats and things like that. It, it all amounted to her then taking on that hypervigilance and her taking on that, that's some, some degree of that paranoia that I had. Um, and so, yeah. And then the other thing that I didn't really get much into in the book, um, but it's sort of an everyday conscious thought for me is uh, trauma can be generational too. And anybody who had, you know, like who grew up in their, their, maybe their dad or was in world war two or something, you know, you hear those stories of, you know, he would, get really upset he would yell that kind of thing some some of that is generational trauma and so i'm very mindful of that like anytime i raise my voice you know in my son's presence i'm always now thinking okay i gotta make sure you know sometimes you know you just get frustrated with your kid but i'm thinking a next level like i don't want i don't want to pass on any kind of generational trauma yeah um by the way when's your wedding anniversary uh it is august 16th so okay. we were we were and it's oh three I've done this for no one else, but I'm going to Venmo you a hundred bucks. Whatever you were going to do, make it a hundred bucks better. <laughs> Thanks, man. Your, your wife's a saint. Not that you're not worth it. I mean, obviously your good qualities. The funny thing, reading the book, and I, I'm so happy I got to read it on the way back from a funeral in Montana. Oh, wow. um, Wilma Sansever, 92 years old, my best friend's mom. Wolf Point, Montana is like as far out in Montana as you can go. You fly to Billings, <laughs> then you drive for four hours. But I got to finish your book. And and it just kind of struck me in, in in going through it, like so many parts. You never went there all the way, but there were so many parts like, man, I liked this guy, what I knew of you, like politically, and I knew mm-hmm. a bit of your story, didn't know all of it. And then there's parts like, I don't like this guy as much as I liked him, but the reason why I didn't is because you kept telling me you weren't worth it. And I was <laughs> yeah. believing you, and you were belie- like, there was a self-worth issue that's that's a huge thing in depression, right? Like, mm-hmm. am I even worthy to be here? And you compare yourself in situations, and and your wife saw the good in you. She's like, "We ain't giving up on this thing." Yeah, no, that's a hundred percent right. I mean, it's the thing about PTSD is, uh, well, the thing. There are many things. Yeah. One of the things uh, in this, like what you're referring to, is at least for me, it it made me feel like I was irredeemable, and it made me it made me it, it basically. And a lot of people have this to some degree. It's just more accentuated with PTSD. It's like anytime something good happens or you have something where you should be proud of yourself, uh, it's like there's a rebuttal inside your mind. And and in my case, the way I contextualized that was, you know, I had this four-month deployment in Afghanistan where I was at times in a lot of danger, but I never acknowledged that to myself. I, I, I denied the idea that I was because it wasn't the conventional, you know, John Wayne combat movie way. Um, because for context, for those listening, I was an intelligence officer whose job it was to go out and investigate corruption and espionage. And that just meant taking meetings with people of questionable allegiances and, you know, having no backup and it just being like me and a translator and, and just at a great risk of kidnapping. And but in my mind, it was like, but that's not combat. And so the story I was telling myself for years was I wasn't worthy of any of these challenges I was having. And on top of that, because I every soldier has friends who have done more, no matter what you did. Um, so then I, I didn't feel worthy 
to get treatment. I didn't feel any of those things. And then that made me feel like I just had to redeem myself somehow. And that drove me very hard. And so one of the interesting things about writing this book was I wanted to write it because the way you described it is perfect. Like for the first act, you're kind of like, I don't or really it's the second act. I don't know if I like this guy. And that's because I didn't like that guy. And I wanted I wanted to tell the story in a way where, yes, now I have all this language available to me, all of these tools, but I wanted the chronology to go in such a way where my narration only has available to it at the point that we are in the book, the, the way I understood it then. And as the book goes on, I gain the tools, I gain the language to talk about it, and I gain an understanding of myself. My great uncle, when he read it, actually said, he said, it's a mystery. The book is a mystery that reveals a lot of twists in the third act. And I think that that's true. I hadn't heard anybody else say it that way. That's a very good explanation. Um, And as I kept, like your wife, in a different way, I was like, come on, get get to the other side, man. I I want you to win this. And I figured if you published a book and you seem to be on your feet again, like, Things probably are better. Okay, like I've done some veterans events, and and it's kind of funny that, that you talk about the dark humor, and we talk about some some guys seem like they're over, and and women seem like they're over it, and they're fine. They got a job now, and they have kids, and they're doing stuff they used to do, and and but they're not all the way over it. They're only over it to the extent that they seem better than that other guy in the corner who's not talking at all, and the other guy in the middle who's kind of talking. It's, you know what I mean? Like there's all mm-hmm. these gradations of it. Yeah. And for me, ultimately, the reason I decided to to write the book, because I, you know, I understood, uh, like when I finished with my first like regimen of therapy, and I knew I was getting a lot better. I understood that there was a story here to tell. But I kept putting off the idea of actually telling it my my agent would bring it up. Uh, you know, I would go to talk to because I'd done a successful book before and I'd go to publishers and hey, I got this idea for a book. And they'd be like, yeah, yeah. You're going to write about PTSD or not. And finally, what I decided was, is that I wanted to write the book that had I had it existed 14 years ago, and I'd read it, that I would have made the choice then to get help. Um, because that book di- didn't exist. And, and to think about like the veterans you mentioned at the at that event, you know, when you think about the way PTSD is portrayed in popular culture, it is extremely rare that it is portrayed as somebody who is in the stage of life that I'm in that I refer to as post-traumatic growth. It is generally what I call PTSD porn, which is to say it is oftentimes a veteran, not always, but oftentimes a veteran who is abusing their wife or abusing drugs or robbing a bank or all three at the same time. And the thing is, is that I was several months into therapy before I even understood that you're actually supposed to get better if you commit to the treatment and that most people do. And, and I didn't even know that. And my, my therapist had to show me like evidence and studies that said, yeah, people who commit to the program, the vast majority get to a point where the symptoms no longer disrupt their life. And I realized that my coming out, so to speak with mental health challenges helped a lot of people, people feel seen. And that is meaningful to me, but I realized that the next thing I could do is I could help people understand that PTSD is not a terminal diagnosis from a life or a career standpoint, that if you address it, you can actually move to a new stage. And I I think, because I think for a long time, one of the reasons I was hesitant to address it is because I thought, what's the point? It's not going to get better.
Let me give you a kind of a parallel story, not to make it about me, but as you know, I have a veterans foundation called Run Freely, R-U-N-F-R-E-E-L-Y dot O-R-G, runfreely.org. So I ruined my ankle playing football. And this is a parallel to what you had touched on about not feeling John Wayne enough because you didn't get in those firefights. You did this other thing that was dangerous, but it wasn't the kind of danger that prototypically we think of when, you know, you're on a hillside and hiding behind a rock, right? Shooting. So a miracle to my life, I found this amazing device in Gig Harbor, Washington, this guy that makes these devices for veterans who have injuries from any any sort of thing. Could be, could be a fight or it could be jumping out of a helicopter. It could be anything. You have an ankle that doesn't work, but with this device, you can now do stuff you used to get to do with no pain. It's unbelievable. I'm not making money off this. We're giving away money. <laughs> no, I know you're not. Uh, in yeah. fact, the last guy, like we owed the guy 8000 We were down to five. It's a very small charity. We're, we're going one by one. Um, so Gretchen and I, Jamal Crawford's our, our number one benefactor, by the way. Um, I get this device, and they put me on the treadmill on day one, and my ankle sucks. And, and it sucked worse then. I've done better therapy for it since, but- I was running 15 miles an hour, literally, day one. I put it on, wow. and I started crying, and I couldn't stop. For three hours, I couldn't even talk, and I was you know, choked up even mm-hmm. talking about it. And I immediately felt unworthy. Like, mm-hmm. why am I getting this thing? These other guys in the room, almost all of them, one of them were missing a leg and this and that. And one of them grabbed me, the veteran. He's like, dude, pain is pain. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, you did yours, so what, it was college football? We did ours, so what, it was this way? And you deserve this thing, just like we deserve this thing. We all deserve this thing. And I, when I read your book, I remembered that story about myself, and I too still somewhat feel unworthy. I, he made the thing for veterans. I'm now almost like a debt, like I'm repaying the debt by doing this foundation to give these away, right? And I felt like it, it kind of was in the parallel of what you said. Well, I didn't do the regular army action stuff. I did intelligence work. But the thing is, you could have been kidnapped at any point. You describe it in the book. You always were kind of looking behind you, which is why you came back. And the adjustment was weird because you're still looking behind you, even though you're now in America, right? Like mm-hmm. like you held on to that. But you kept bringing up, I didn't do what those guys did. I always have an expression for it where I say, others have suffered more. That's the way I say it. You, always, mm-hmm. you were saying others did more, you know, same yeah. thing kind of. Yeah, no, it's in the parallel is trauma is trauma. I mean, that's the parallel to pain is pain. And, and so very similar. I mean, people come up to me all the time now and they'll tell me about a a bad car accident or losing a loved one or, or surviving cancer, but they'll couch it and they'll say, you know, I wasn't in a war or anything. And I always stop them. And I'm like, that doesn't actually matter because your brain has no idea what my brain experienced. And that's what it took me over 10 years and a bunch of therapy to find out was that I can't rank my trauma out of existence. All, all that denying my trauma actually does is delay my, my opportunity to heal. And that is so right on. And there are so many people, I mean, like right now in this country with the multitudes of different ways in which people are, are experiencing trauma, um, look, there's a lot of people walking around with some kind of undiagnosed PTSD or just some kind of trauma and Man, life is not that long. Like, it's worth it to get that treated and enjoy it because it is very analogous to what you're talking about. It, it's an injury. Like, that's what PTSD is. It, I got injured, and you know, if I had, you know, I, I, I had a knee injury. Still have a knee injury. But if I had waited for, you know, eleven years to treat my knee injury and I just kept running on that leg, it would be mangled. And that's basically what I did uh, to my mental health during that time. 
I really liked how you brought in, remind me the counselor's name. I'm sorry, I'm forgetting his name. Uh, Nick, my therapist, yeah. Um, you showed his notes, what he mm-hmm. wrote about you, and it really helped the reader understand the progression of how you re- he was ready to let you go before you wanted to let go. He's like, no, hey, man, you're doing okay. And you're, no, 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 I want to come back. And then some other stuff happened in your life that made you want to come back anyway. But I loved his guidance. Man, he... He t- he deserves a hundred dollar Venmo as well. Besides, <laughs> well, Kenny, let me just say, like, yeah, you're right. I reached out to you originally and wanted to send you a book because I was hoping like you'll tweet about it and that kind of thing. And now I'm on your podcast. You're trying to send me a hundred dollars. <laughs> like, this relationship is off to a fine yeah. start, and, and I, I appreciate it. Um, and I promise to use the hundred dollars on my wife. So you know, the, the, which I think <laughs> is your intent. Uh, but you're right. I I felt like that was an important thing to do is to bring in other voices because look. I don't read memoirs by politicians. The ones I've read are written by my very close friends. And I think political memoirs are boring and they're like a campaign ad and they suck and I don't read them and I don't write them either. Um, you know, I, I, that's not what I wanted to write. Um, I mean, for one thing, like you were like, hey, there's parts of the book where I don't like you. Like how many political memoirs? <laughs> people, people are like, there's parts where I didn't like him. Um, and and I felt part of Part of doing that, part of telling a story that would be important and be helpful to people and clearly not be a political memoir was to make sure I brought in other voices. So to bring in my wife's voice, but also to sh- to let the reader experience what was going on with me through the eyes of my therapist. Because, again, using the device of I only can tell you at that moment in the book what I knew then, you need the, you need the clinician to be like, okay, this is what is happening here. You you touched on how your your wife and you, you guys have been together way back seventeen through college yeah. and you had you talk about these big ambitions you were going to change the world and you have to some degree um, uh, as has she so you already succeeded what your goal was you maybe just haven't mm-hmm. finished all of the many things you want to do and one of them was uh, becoming in your role uh, with Secretary of State uh, with voting rights and mm-hmm. so many people have that so wrong. I mean, the Republicans constantly are talking about voter fraud when most of the time it's Republicans doing the voter fraud. The voter fraud is the voter suppression, at least the the, the little bit of reading that I've done. And Missouri, right. as my friend Sarah Kenzior, St. Louis native, uh, she likes to point out, Missouri's like testing grounds for the shit they can get away with. Mm-hmm. And you're in the middle of, you know, a red state, mostly red. Um, man, tell me about that battle, trying to change minds in that environment. Yeah. So it's interesting when I was secretary of state. Uh, so I got elected in, in November of 2012. So I took office in, in uh, January of 2013. And at that time, voter suppression was not a term that was in the lexicon. You know, people people like me, people who were, you know, election nerds and, and like liberal politicians, we understood what voter suppression was. But even then, when you would poll Democratic voters, the vast majority of Democratic voters in Missouri would say, yeah, you should have to show a full photo ID to vote. And they would say that voter fraud is a big problem because people had, I mean, it was a, a fertile ground for the Republicans to push this thing. And at that time, the average Republican didn't really have a view on this, right? It was it was a Republican politician movement that had not become a whole uh, across the board partisan thing, right? It was like, it was corporate backers who wanted to continue to get their economic advantages. And one of the ways to do that was to make sure that they could dilute the power of the vote of people who weren't going to vote for the people they wanted in office, right? But it meant that in order to persuade people uh, 
to pressure their elected representatives against passing photo ID, you had to educate people a lot. And the thing is, is that like in politics, if you're explaining, you're losing. If you're trying to educate, I mean, there's like a whole story arc once on the West Wing of what a problem it was they had to educate people about MS because the you know the president character had MS, and they're like, hey, as long as we're educating, we're losing. But I, but that's what we had to do. And most most Democrats at that moment were choosing to just avoid the issue because they're like, we have no chance here. So the Republicans got a huge head start on the issue. Huge. Yeah. And, and I, you know, we made the choice that we're going to go on offense because nobody had really tried that. And so we went out and we made the case as to what this was and why it was wrong. And we called them out on it. And so then um, after I narrowly lost the Senate race and was, you know, looking at what do I do now? That's a, a lot of what led me to starting Let America Vote, which was let's take what we did in Missouri national and let's because up until that point, the entire fight on voting rights had been in the courts and we'd been winning that fight a lot. But by the time the court case is decided, nobody remembers who filed the bill right. and nobody really cares and there's no no consequence. So we started an organization to create political consequences for voter suppression. And uh, and it was it was very effective. Well, black people can say, I remember voter suppression. We were slaves and we weren't citizens. Then eventually got the right to vote. Then in, what, 64, 65, the, the Lyndon Johnson Voting Rights Act. Like, like very, very slow progress. And then you have things, I mean, gerrymandering is voter suppression, right? It's, it's, oh, yeah. It's creating districts that are safe and somebody gets, the incumbent gets to win. Uh, cutting off the number of polling places, mail-in ballot trouble, you know, even though that's, I'm from Washington State, we've been doing it for a while, like, Mm -hmm. there's like seven people that do it, you know, it's like burning the flag, that happens like nine times a year, (laughs) but yet they can run on our sacred flag and Trump can hug, you know what I mean, like, it's all, it's just a bunch of bullshit that people buy because they hear it repeatedly and they think there's this thing happening and those damn Democrats, they're bringing in Mexicans to vote. It's a fear factor that they just roll out repeatedly. I'm all over the place with this question. I don't even know if I have one. If you can find a question in there, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. No, look, um, they made a calculation uh, a few years ago, um, like a couple decades ago. The Republicans made a calculation that said we have to win by subtraction. Okay. They looked at the demographics of the country, and this is your, you know, now they've like, created into this theory that sounds scientific it's just racism right this yeah. white replacement theory but then like if you call it a theory it makes it sound like the kkk was a bunch yeah. of phds yeah. but but that's the, so they're trying to win by subtraction because they look at it and they go okay um our policies are such that uh minorities in this country uh, particularly black folks don't like us because they're on to us, right? And then they go, oh, okay, the millennial generation and Generation Z, they don't trust us at all because we're bad on climate. We're bad on democracy. We're bad on all these things that they care about. We're bad on, you know, LGBT rights and women's rights and, you know, all this. And so they go, okay, we got a choice. We can try and change our policies in order to attract more of these voters. But if we do that, we're going to lose a lot of corporate cash because that means doing things like having minimum wage go up. It means things like a more progressive tax system. So if we do that, we're going to lose a lot of corporate cash. They say, oh, well, we could maybe we could moderate on on guns. We could come you know, to a more reasonable position on guns uh, because the majority of the country does want that, and particularly younger voters and, and black voters, they want that. And they say, oh, but if we do that, we're going to lose these very reliable voters in rural areas, these white voters who, you know, 
And so on one hand, it's losing money. On, the, on this hand, it's we're going to lose these very reliable, uh, you know, rural voters. So they go, okay, we're not going to make any changes. We're just going to make it so that fewer of the people on the other side can vote and have a minority govern the country. And that's... They're brazen about it. It's not yeah. like... It's no longer secretive. It used to be the backroom stuff. Well, voter suppression is about creating barriers to voting and then creating barriers to the barriers. So like a textbook definition is stuff they've done in like Alabama and Texas where they say you need a DMV issued state ID in order to vote. Well, there's a lot of people who don't need one for any other purpose and they're not going to go take off work to go get one. But okay, you know, people respond to that and go, hey, whatever. So you can go get an ID. Anybody can get one. Okay. But then what's the next step that they do? Which, first of all, it's not that easy. But second, the next, what do they do next? They say, oh, by the way, we're closing down all the DMVs in the black parts of Alabama right. or of Texas. So we've created a barrier and now we're going to create a barrier to the barrier. And that, you know, a few years ago, that was something where when you explained it, uh, the average Republican voter would be like, well, that's wrong because I think my party's right. I think we should win on the merits. But things have become so much more entrenched and so much more partisan that now it, the tribalism has got the average Republican voter going, no, I'm fine with that because that means my side wins. And that's really scary. They've also convinced three quarters. I don't know if the polls are accurate. How many people want to dismiss January 6th as kind of a nothing? It was just a protest that got out of hand. And Trump maybe did actually get screwed because they didn't count him right in Arizona. And like they have, you know, Fox News has pounded into your grandpa's heads and your aunt has hit the Facebook button one too many times. <laughs> and right pretty soon that message is propagated to such a degree that it becomes fact when it's not. And now we can't even agree on the basic set of facts to argue. But it used to be and things weren't even that great back when I thought they were great. But at least they were kind of better, maybe, in my youth, where, okay, liberals are over here, conservatives are over here, let's have some meetings, maybe we can come to some at least understanding. Now, there's none of that. You got Jim Jordan with no jacket making up shit. You got Ted Cruz and, and Holly from Missouri, where, you know, they were part of, you know, they were part of it, right? He was throwing a clenched fist to the guys as they're walking in. It's scary because it's a choose-your-own-reality world right now. And so, I mean... My podcast is about this. It's about how do you break through that through your personal relationships. So, you know, our following is, is it's a lot of people who have somebody in their life that they want to maintain a relationship with, whether it's a relative or a friend or whatever, who doesn't agree with them. And they'd like to keep the relationship while also possibly persuading them of things. And so that's the whole theme of, of Majority 54 is how do we... How do we have those relationships? How, you know, because I'm a guy who I'm a liberal who lives here in Kansas City, who, you know, I deal on a regular basis, whether it's coworkers or anybody else with people who totally disagree with me. Those relationships are important to me. And I'd like to kind of bring them over to my side. And so and I have, you know, a lot of experience with getting people to who usually are Republican to vote for me. So that's that's what we talk about is, is how to break through that kind of thing. Well, here's the thing. You lost your race in 2016 in a much narrow, far more narrow margin than did Trump win that state, right? So it kind of proved, oh, they actually listened on the other side. They voted for the apprentice host, but they kind of like this guy. Yeah, Trump won my state by more than he won Mississippi. He won Missouri by 19 on the same day that I lost the Senate race by 2.8. Um, and so, and I wasn't exactly like out there pretending to be a Republican. Um, so, you know, and, and I think a lot of it is you just, you, you you have the same positions, but you, you say them in a way people where you're from say them. And that's kind of what, what we work on on the show. I want people yell. I want people, I'm not even too 
10% of the anger that I've carried for all this time. And it's just, it's maddening. It's maddening that, that people won't see it. And, and there's a handful, you know, Swalwell's out there, and I love Hakeem Jeffries and the Goose and AOC and Jayapal, and I can name a bunch of others, not to Ted Lieu. They, they say real things. They say it out loud. They name names. And I just feel like there's a whole bunch of people in that party that still want to pretend we're back in the day where Reagan and Tip O'Neill met for a drink. Like, we ain't there anymore. Yeah, you're kind of – it's interesting to, to watch some people sort of accept that reality, you know? Like, like just to watch – President Biden over the course of the administration so far to, you know, people like people are like, oh, I guess he he's just uh, getting cynical. And it's like, no, I mean, he sounds different than he did in the debates in the primary because, I mean, the guy grew up in the Senate, you know, and and it there's a grieving process there. I mean, I, I don't in any way pretend to understand Joe Manchin. But when I look at like Joe Manchin on voting rights, He's out there trying to peddle compromises with the Republicans in the Senate that I tried in 2013 in the Missouri House of Representatives. And I learned in a month, like, oh, they don't actually care about fraud. They just don't want black people to vote. And there's a grieving process there. And he's just not as far ahead in it as we are. And I agree with you. People need to catch up because things are on the line. Um, (laughs) Man, there's a 10,000. This it's funny. No offense to anybody else, but I could go on for hours because I'm so interested in it. I used to have to hide my political uh, leanings when I worked for ESPN. I'd usually I'd quote Stevie Wonder if Trump was talking, and I'd quote the lyrics to "He's Mr. Know It All." Or there, there were others. I, there's a, there's yeah. something. There's a song for every occasion. And I, like I said, I would shoot from beyond the Jamel line. That was how I described it. <laughs> That's a great expression. She went down deep. She she just <laughs> like I'm doing, and I respected her. But you know, I got four daughters with my new marriage. So we each had two. We have four together. We got college. We were okay. paying bills. So I always felt a little bit like a sellout. Like I ain't going hard enough. I go much harder now because I don't have anybody to answer to so much um, and more literal. But I guess in what I was talking about earlier with regard to the people you're trying to influence, I've sort of given up on the people I don't think I have a prayer of influencing. And I'm hoping, even I'm no big deal, but I, but I have a little bit of audience that might listen or might you know hopefully influence you i mean coming out of the sports world like you absolutely you have a platform that people are drawn to you they'll give you a chance uh and that is something well i get a lot of people it's funny it's like the letters to the editor the people who wrote the letters to the editor were the ones who were pissed off and it's something to say right you don't get the people well that was a good article there they might but more often they just thought it was a good article the ones that are mad so i find on twitter the people who want to hate on me for something i express are loud, the people who support me might just like it. You know what I mean? There's kind of a difference in there. But right. I, I don't care that much. I, I guess what I was trying to say is I feel like we should go after, I don't even know what the percentage is. There's so many people that just don't pay attention. They, they're too busy. They think both sides, they throw that one. They're both, they're all corrupt, you know. And there is corruption on the Democrat side. You know, and people should, there shouldn't be money in politics. Getting the money out would be very helpful. The stock shouldn't be allowed. Like, I was totally disagreeing with Pelosi on that. Like, no, you should not be able to have your husband or wife, you know, load up on such and such when you have a committee meeting a day later that's going to give headlines that, you know, that's crazy. But It's a no-brainer. But there is no way to do the both sides with regard to the current state of affairs. It doesn't mean I agree with everything on the Democrat side, but I definitely, with the exception of Kinziger sometimes, Cheney sometimes, Romney when he gets a conscience sometimes, that's three, do I have any others? But then they go back and vote with their party. So they don't even, you know, why are you still in that party? Like, I, 
all of it's insane. But I'm sorry, this is so long winded. But I was trying to. I'm turning the corner. This is the Magellan route to this question. <laughs> we're gonna get there. We're coming around the Cape of Africa. I think what it is, you were talking about the difference in the way the Republicans and Democrats look at the the voter suppression. Well, a lot of middle class white people in South Seattle haven't suffered voter depression, so they might read about it or they might hear you speak. But they get to go vote at their local elementary, and it takes five minutes. So they have an experience. It's the old thing of they came for him, and they came for him, and they, you know they finally came for me. Mm-hmm. So we need those people, people like me and, and others, to get energized to defend our fellow citizens who are getting screwed. So you're right, and there's an upside and a downside to this phenomenon that you're talking about, the the, the lesser engaged voters, right? Um, and, and the thing about them is is that I think politicians tend to look at them, they'll call them like low information voters. Um, I think of them as normal people who are living their lives, right? Because, you know, most folks do not pay attention to now political hobbyism has become more of a thing. But for the most part, most people who are persuadable don't pay attention to politics at the level that that other folks do. They and and but what's good about that is that it means that they don't hold their views and their opinions so tightly, right? I compare it more to like sports fandom, okay, in this way. Um, I'm a Royals fan. And as a result, I, like any small market team in the American League, I have a moral obligation to hate the New York Yankees. It's just like part of life. I understand it, right? But if I'm hanging out with my friends, uh, you know, like, like I, I still play baseball. If I'm hanging out with my teammates and I say something like, you know, complimentary about Aaron Judge, right? And I'm just like, I mean, that guy is amazing and he's amazing to watch, right? Or or not long ago, I took my son to a game. We played the Yankees and he got to see Garrett Cole pitch. And I was I said something complimentary sure. about that. Nobody in on like my group of friends is going to be like, you're not a real Royals fan anymore get out. Like they're not going to banish me from my circle of friends. That's the way politics works in most social circles in this country, which means that we have this idea in our head that people are like going down a spreadsheet and they're judging that all voters are judging politicians on every little issue. No, there a lot of these persuadable voters are just like, I want to get home and I want to like watch a ball game, help my kid with their homework, maybe, you know, play some catch or have a tea party with my daughter, whatever they're doing. And three weeks before the election, they'll engage. And they're going to try and figure out who's full of shit and who isn't. And we can still get those people. And, right. we ha- and, and we have to try to get those people. Because when you stop trying to get those people, the message you send those people is, you're not a voter for us. And if you do that, they'll believe you. And that's the problem. Well, that's what happened in 2016. Uh, I knew some people, I might have been helping slightly, uh, who were putting out political ads and... I know for a fact they shut things down with about a month. They, they thought it was over. Hillary won. And they didn't bother going to Wisconsin. They didn't bother going to some of these places where he did go. But he was a great con man. Sarah Kinzer wrote a great book about the view from flyover country. And it explained the set of circumstances that would allow a con man to sweep in and fool a bunch of people. And unfortunately, uh, they all paid for it. But then you get people who think, well, I grew up Republican. I'm for small government and lower taxes. They just keep repeating small government. Actually, they have kind of an over you have a dog barking what's the dog's name yeah it's talia and, um, yes and you you trained to hug or your wife trained her yeah to that's hug. right and clearly some menacing person has walked a dog past it's the fine. house so it's fine we like dogs uh, sometimes music uh, plays in the next room we don't care so i i could i it's all that old thing about what do you who are you against that's easy what do you stand for that's harder right 
I can name like 10 things that me just as a regular citizen, I am in favor of. And a lot of them, like AOC will say it and people, oh, that crazy leftist liberal. It's like, no, it's kind of mostly kind of common sense. Looking out for the next guy, taking care of the vets, taking care of the hungry, helping the kids, insurance, you know, legalized marijuana is such a no brainer. The VA will still hand out opioids day and night, but marijuana is a step too far. Like there's so many inconsistencies. And then what are the Republicans for? They're for winning. They're for holding office. They're for they're going to mention small taxes or lower taxes, but that's bullshit, too. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that what Democrats stand for, what progressives stand for, is when you take those issues and you, and you put them out a la carte, the vast majority of Americans tend to agree with us. And, it, and so oftentimes you end up in a branding uh, problem. You end up in an identity crisis. I mean, look, politics or partisanship has become a lot like religion in this country. It's handed down, right? Uh, there are people who I talk to all the time, particularly as a veteran, meaning I have a lot of friends who come from a rural area who then, you know, went back to that rural area. And now like, what do they do for hobbies? Like they hunt, they, they shoot, that kind of thing. There's an, they, they will agree with everything that I stand for and then be like, well, you know, you're okay. But because all their friends voted for Trump and, you know, tribalism is a thing, right? It's a natural thing. So what we have to do is we have to, talk about the things we care about in a way that relates exactly to people in their lives. And so I always talk about this as, you know, most voters, particularly in the Midwest and the South, what they're really looking for is they want their family to be happy, healthy, safe, and nearby. Now, you can go off on a tangent and talk about healthcare. You can talk about safety in terms of guns. You can talk about all that stuff. But if you're not always bringing it home to the fact that the biggest thing that we're missing here is the nearby. And that is not a function of the party being too liberal. That's a function of the leadership of the party traditionally here of late comes from the places that our kids go to when they finish school. My son is eight. My daughter is almost two. And I already am thinking about like, how do I keep their sixth generation Kansas Cityans? This is my home. What do I do to keep them here? What do I do to be around them and to be around my grandkids? And that's a that's an anxiety that a lot of people where I'm from have. So when Trump in 16 was talking about trade, nobody in Missouri was like, well, you know, he made some great points about NAFTA. I've taken a close look at it. I mean, very few people. But what they were thinking was, he seems to be saying that my kids won't have to move to get a good job. And I like being around my kids. And that resonated. But the thing is, we have a better argument for that. We just ought to talk about it that way. Well, my hang-up was, how in the hell are you believing a single word he says? He's a five-time failed businessman, just a litany of, of you know horrible things. That the Central Park Five, the exonerated five, he called for their death. Uh, he was challenging Obama's birthplace, on and on and on. The, the list was so long of things to not like him for, including when he came down and announced and called all the Mexicans rapists. And it was just such a dirty... Like, okay, and then the thing happened with the tape. Okay, he's got it. I mean, Gary Hart got thrown out for being with a girl on a boat or something. You know, yeah. like, it's just the line moved so far of what was allowable. When he said, I could kill somebody on Fifth Avenue with a gun and get away with it, that's the one true thing he ever said. But obviously, you know, I'm with you on all that, but I think a lot of people went, well, okay, that may all be true, <laughs> but if my kids don't have to move, and, like, the, and the other side wasn't saying... Well, actually, we're the ones who will make it where we can right. make your community strong. It's, you know, in the absence of a, of a counter argument, you know, we know what happens. So,
I wanted to real quick, 28, 2018. I'm getting the dates mixed up. You, you, you. He was gonna run for president, pretty much. That's that's what's happening. Yeah, you want me to just go through it here? No, no, no. I'll, I uh, think uh, I got it. Okay. Obama okay. is out of office, and they like this guy, this this ex army guy. This he's you know state politician. He's tried for senate, almost got it. And they're like, dude, you you got 17 points better than most Democrats in that red state. You got presidential material written all over you, and, and and you were like, me? How could I run for president? They're like, dude, Donald Trump is the pre- anybody can run for president, <laughs> and it's so. That's the one thing that's beautiful. I grew up as a kid, always hearing anyone can be president, never mm-hmm. proven more true. Um, so you're in there with Obama. How did you know what was going on? Did you know that was the anointing? What, what did you think was happening? Well, I, I wouldn't want anointing. Uh, is a great word, but probably I wouldn't want to oversell it, right? It was uh, more like, va- it was validating is what it was, but I did not know that. Like I had, um, so yeah, to provide like a little more context, it's like, I'm thinking I'm getting ready to run for president, but I'm also having, you know, imposter syndrome about it. I'm, I'm at the time I'm like 30, I think six years old and I'm uh, going, yeah, this clearly, this is me. Like I should be doing this. Right. Uh, but Outwardly, but inwardly, I'm I'm having my doubts. Um, but a lot of people are, are saying I should, and and I and I, you know, I wanted to. So I, I'm at this uh, party in Martha's Vineyard, which is a super relatable thing to say. Um, and the Obamas are there, and I and I talked to them for a bit. And and the only relationship I had had with him up until that point was uh, one that I was pretty much unaware of. You know, he had his last interview before he left office uh, in the Oval, he was asked, you know, who who out there gives you hope for the future? And this is, you know, to remember, this is like the day before Trump is inaugurated. So it's a heavy question. And I was the first person he mentioned. And it, you know, obviously was a, a boon to my prospects and a surprise. But I, I still didn't internalize the idea that like we had any kind of relationship. We had briefly met once. And so we met this party and he and I start talking and he says to me, you know, we should be working together. Um, when are you going to, when, when can we get together? And it was kind of funny because he was actually like, now, when are you going to be in this place? And I was like, uh, Mr. President, just tell me when you'd like <laughs> go somewhere. Right. Like, I mean, like we don't have to pretend we're peers, yeah. you know? And uh, he's like, Oh, okay. But then we kind of left it at that and I didn't think much of it. And then a few months later, I uh, pretty well got summoned. It was just kind of like, hey, no, he really does. And like people from his world are reaching out. No, he wants to see you. And so I went to see him and I I thought of it as like, okay, uh, maybe I'll get him to, you know, sign an email solicitation for Let America Vote or maybe he'll, maybe I can get him to show up at a fundraiser, you know. And I thought it would be like 15 minutes and it'd be me and him and like a couple staffers taking notes. But yeah, I was pretty shocked when I showed up and we walk into his little office and he closes the door and he's in no hurry. And it's just me and him. And we had this, you know, he's my political hero. And I had this incredible hour and a half head to head, you know, hangout with this guy who even exceeded my high expectations. And he's validating me and basically saying, you know, I'll let people read the book. Yeah. So, Well, I'm going to fill in a hair because it led me to where I really wanted to go. Um you then start actually exploring the idea. I believe you're in Hawaii with your wife and another guy that needs to mention your your number one. Abe. Yeah, yeah Abe Rakoff, who ran all my stuff. Yeah, my he sounds stuff. like a good dude. 
He's a great dude. Yeah, uh, a great dude. And he gets a hundred dollar Venmo also. Fine. <laughs> like you're gonna run out. Of, I hope you have a lot of advertisers. <laughs> I hope one of them is Venmo, by the way. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> they're getting some love. <laughs> so at that point, you're like, uh, maybe I'll run for president, and then and then the PTSD's kicking in, and you finally make. Am I giving away too mm-hmm. much of the book? No, no, it's fine. Um, so at that you're point, for, you're going to change. You're going to change what you're running for. Yeah, I'm, well, it, after the Obama meeting and things are going well and people are responding to me, like I'm like I'm running. You can't say it out loud, but everybody knew I was running for president. And I go, and uh, at this point, things have gotten so bad for me that like I'm having, I've been having the whole time night terrors every night. I mean, I haven't slept, but outwardly I'm okay. Uh, but I'm really just going from endorphin hit to endorphin hit, and those endorphin hits are, are speeches and performances and, and meeting moments and doing doing you know media appearances. But those those highs are lasting shorter and shorter periods of time, and it sort of culminates in I give this total. Obviously, this guy is running and auditioning to run speech in New Hampshire, live on Road to the White House on C-SPAN nationally. My parents are at home watching it. It's a huge deal, and I crushed the speech. And it was clear, like, this should have been the moment for me in my life. And by the next morning, I felt complete emptiness again, and I knew, okay, this is serious. Like, even this isn't working. And so um, Brian Schatz, the senator from Hawaii, invited me to come out and give a speech to the Democrats in Hawaii. And my family and I, we went out there, and it was like the closest thing to a family trip we'd had in forever. And I opened up to Abe, and I'd already talked to my wife about some of the things I'd been going through. And he threw out the idea of, because I said, well, what if I didn't run? And he just sort of in passing was like, well, you could stop traveling so much and you could run for mayor of Kansas City. And it was like somebody threw me a life preserver. I just grabbed it. And in my head, what I was doing was I was going to seek that redemption that is so common, it turns out, to trauma survivors of I was going to build something in my hometown and that was supposedly going to fill up the hole inside of me. But I also was telling myself, I'm going to go to the VA while I do it. And I didn't keep that promise, that second promise to myself. I did start running for mayor, which should have been great. Like if you go from running for president to running for mayor, you and I was are the prohibitive front runner. And it was the first campaign I'd ever been in where we knew from the beginning I was going to win. Should have been really fun, but it, I, things just started getting worse faster. And I, I got to the point where I was thinking more and more about ending my life. And that then that all came to uh, making a call to the Veterans Crisis Line that helped me realize, oh, no, this thing I've been denying to myself that I have and denying to the world that I have for so long, I definitely have it, and I have to address it now. But it wasn't a waltz going into the VA. You had help, which is where I wanted to go, this organization that, that you're doing so much work for. And it's a shame because, like, even with my little foundation – the VA won't pay for this brace. We have to raise the money, right? Because it's not approved. There's yeah. Medicare. Can, it's it's stupid. They'd rather have a guy have another surgery and give him more drugs and rehab than take this device that lets them be pain free. I mean, it's that's that's our deal we're dealing with. But in your case, just tell us the whole story. There, there's an organization yeah. you knew the leader of, and now you're very involved in, and it's helping veterans in an adjunct way to what the VA does, I guess. Mm-hmm. So organization started in Kansas City by a group of combat veterans. It's called Veterans Community Project. I had toured it while I was running for mayor and gotten like the VIP, you're going to be mayor tour. One of the co-founders had volunteered on my secretary of state's race, and so we were friends. And uh, and I went and saw it, and, it, and I've toured a lot of nonprofits, you know, as a politician, but it 
it just struck me. I mean, it, it's like a forward operating base in Afghanistan and a Silicon Valley startup had a baby. Like it's just innovative, but like, you know, dark gallows humor. And it just felt like home. And I went home. This is still during the mayoral campaign. I went home to my wife that night and I was like, boy, I wish I could just quit everything and go work there. But like, I didn't mean it. It wasn't a realistic notion. I was a politician. That's what I did for a living. And the six weeks later, I go to the VA and they tell me that it's going to be four or five months before I can get enrolled and start getting weekly therapy. And now think about it. Like I'm a former secretary of state with a law degree from Georgetown and high level contacts. And I'm looking at the system and going, I don't know how I'm going to navigate it. So I call Brian and I'm like, what do I do? I'm making this announcement tomorrow. And he's like, well, come on down. So I go through the walk-in center, just like thousands of other vets in Kansas City. And a week later, they had expedited my paperwork with the VA and gotten me into weekly therapy and made a huge difference in my life. You could argue it saved my life. And uh, around this time, VCP, Veterans Community Project, had made such a huge difference on battling the suicide epidemic in Kansas City among veterans and on uh, largely ending street homelessness among veterans in the city um, that they were getting invitations from communities all over the country to expand nationwide. And, you know, after I'd been going to therapy for a few months, I just started hanging around and giving advice because I'd built a national organization before. And finally, Brian was like, hey, man, like, you ain't working. You're just growing your beard and taking VCP t-shirts and giving us advice. Why don't you come here full time? So three years ago, I became the president of National Expansion at Veterans Community Project. And um, now we're growing into the Denver area, into St. Louis, into Sioux Falls, Oklahoma City, and then we have more cities on the way. But others who didn't have that connection are still stuck in the bureaucracy of the VA. Why can't the VA, why they keep talking about reforming it. Why can't it happen where it gets a kickstart and models what you just described? Well, here's what's so frustrating about it is that, you know, I go to the VA for my care. Uh, Most of the guys I work with and gals go to the VA uh, for their care. The veterans do. Um, The people there are awesome. It is a fan- Once you are in the system, for me so far, it has largely been a fantastic experience in terms of the individuals you meet, the clinicians, everybody. The system is such that because people in Washington over time have never really wanted to spend real money on this, they'll spend lots of money sending people to war, but they don't really want – they want to put pictures of veterans on their website. They don't want to actually do stuff for them you know, if it costs money. And so what that means is, is that the VA has oftentimes a much more narrow, by Congress's definitions, a much more narrow definition of what qualifies as a veteran. So for instance, if, you know, we've talked about January 6th a bit in this conversation, if you are like, say, a New York National Guardsman, and you spent five months on active duty at the Capitol, right, you were mobilized for that, but you never went to Iraq or Afghanistan, and you never deployed to a combat zone during the rest of your time in the Guard, you won't be eligible to go to the VA. The federal government will not consider you a veteran of the United States military, which is ridiculous. If you have, let's say, a dishonorable discharge because, like somebody we helped, you got three DUIs, each one coming between one of your four combat deployments, not a real mystery how that happened. Well, there's a lot you're not eligible for at the VA. You're not considered a veteran in a lot of ways. Now, some of that's changed, thankfully. But and we want to change that, and I'm working on changing that in the long in the long haul. But it leaves a lot of gaps, and I'm always careful about this because I don't want anybody listening to this to be discouraged from trying to get into the VA. Please don't be discouraged. Do try. It is worth it. But we also have to address the fact that we we need to widen the site aperture. We need a much lower barrier to entry. What we do is we have an attitude of if you raised your right hand and swore that oath to the country, if you served one day, 
you qualify for 100% of our services. That's where we need to get because you have to have that level of buy-in. Because if people go into it thinking at some point it shoots and ladders, I'm going to be bounced out, they won't commit to the treatment. They won't commit to the system and because they're just bracing for being kicked out of it. And that makes them much less likely to be successful. Yeah. How's your wife doing? You're, you're very open and she's very open in the book that she dealt with her version of Secondary PT, I don't know what we can call it. Mm -hmm. but. Yeah, secondary post-traumatic stress, yeah. Uh, we're doing really well. Um, you know, we have struggles like anybody else, but she refers to this part of our, our marriage as she's on her second marriage. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you know, she's on her second marriage, and she finally got to marry her high school sweetheart, which was the guy that she thought she married in the first place, right? And um, we're having a lot of fun. I mean, you know, we get the chance now, like I... I make time for stuff that actually matters now. Like I, I drop my son off at school almost every day or pick him up almost every day. I coach the little league team. I, I have, you know, I play on my own baseball team. Like tonight, I, to give you an idea tonight, I will go to the same uh, stadium where my dad played his games in high school. And I will play a game with my over 30 wood bat team where my son will be the bat boy and my, my wife and my daughter will be in the stands. But last night I didn't do that even though we had a game because my wife and I have a rule. I'm only going to play two games a week. So last night we all hung out as a family. So like we're doing the important stuff now. You're on load management. I'm on load management. I'm 41, man. I'm, I'm on load management for my knee and for my chores. <laughs> well, I think it's, uh, it's. I think love story is the best way to describe it. Then, the the whole thing and Thanks, the man. fact that you guys were going to say one's enough. And am I right that your daughter was born mm -hmm. on the anniversary of your yeah. stepping back? There's some poetry in that, is there not? Yeah, we we were never gonna. I mean. It was just kind of unspoken, but it was like uh, we were not in a position to have another kid, you know. Um, and uh, and then I remember, you know, my daughter was born uh, September twenty fifth, twenty twenty, and I had uh, I had made my announcement that I was stepping back from everything October second of twenty eighteen. So within a week for the two year anniversary is when she was born, and her due date was actually October second. So her due date was the exact day. And um, the day after she was born, I emailed Nick, my therapist, uh, you know, a picture of her. And I just, I told him, you know, this wouldn't happen without you. And he emailed back and said, well, I appreciate that, but you did all the work. And that's the thing. Like, that's really what I want people to understand. And that's why I wrote the book is that there's work you can do to get to the other side. It's work, but it's so worth doing. My life is so different and so much better uh, and I just want, I want that for other people. You know what? I was going to turn and talk about your love of baseball, but baseball doesn't sound as important as everything you just went through. So I'm glad you chose life. I'm glad your wife stayed with you. I'm glad you got two kids now and your love of baseball survives. I'm not even going to ask the obvious question of what will you do next? Cause we'll find that out one day. Appreciate you joining our show. Thanks man. I appreciate it. Kenny. Hey, Maine is a production of me, Kenny Maine, and Odyssey. Our senior producer is Paul Aspen. Our executive producer is Jody Avergan. And our executive producer for Odyssey is Lena Glazer. Social media support by Joey Capone. If you like our show, please rate us, leave a review, and don't forget to subscribe.